0: I've been aware of burgoo for forever. It seems like I, I think when I was in junior high or what they call middle school now, I remember them setting up a burgoo pot behind the junior high school, and Davey Warford and his family stirring that pot for for hours. Um, the first time I actually tried it, I didn't. I didn't try it then. I don't. I'm not sure. Maybe at that age, I wasn't quite ready yet, but. The first time I tried, it was at one of the the festivals in Lawrenceburg. And um, I just remember being really impressed by how delicious it was.
1: Welcome to Local Fairy Tales. I'm your narrator, Nora Vetter. What is a local fairy tale? It's the story of a fair, F-A-R-E, that can only be found in certain regions, states, cities, and so on. Each tale will be told with the help of the voices that know it well. Historians, creators, servers, festival organizers, super fans, etc. Today's featured fair, Burgoo. You heard Steve Ross from the Central Kentucky-based band Punchin' Creek speak about his first experience with Burgoo. Now let's meet the rest of our Burgoo tale-tellers.
2: I'm Patrick Bossey with the Moonlight Barbecue Inn. I'm
3: Amanda Carter with the LaSalle County Historical Society. I'm Kendall Clinton from the Lawrenceburg-Anderson
4: County Tourism Commission.
5: I'm Pastor Benny Calgar of the Burgoo Baptist Church.
6: Tim Frederick. Greg Marcy. Steve Ross. And Brandon Warren from Punching Creek. I'm Bob Gates. I was director of the Kentucky Folklife Program for 30 years. My name is Russ
7: Kennedy. My title, Burgoo guy. I'm Jessica Stavros from the Kentucky Historical Society.
8: My name is Sue Talbot. I am a volunteer that organizes the Burgoo Cook-Off here in Webster Springs.
9: My name is Mark Thuring. I'm the Executive Chef and Managing Director of Keeneland Hospitality. i William Davis
10: Walford, Jr., Known as Davey. I'm Jay Williams, and you're listening.
7: And you are listening to the local. The local fairy tale of. Local fairy tale of burgoo. Fairy tale of
5: burgoo soup. Of Kentucky style burgoo. Of burgoo.
9: I'm Chef Mark Thuring from Keenan Hospitality, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of Burgoo. I flew over from San Diego to the interview for this position. The Burgoo uh, I saw on the menus, and I actually brought that up in the interview. I said, "What is Burgoo, and when can I change it?" Because I, I didn't, I, I the name Burgoo just, I don't know, it doesn't sound like something I want to rush and go eat. So I, that's, I just didn't know what it was. I was very ignorant, and I could tell you. <laughs> that, I got a lot of white faces and long, draw, long jaw drops on that uh, on that question.
11: Would you put something in your mouth called burgoo? It sounded a lot like bird do to me, <laughs> but I I got around to you know, loving it.
6: <laughs> you know, I I was not that impressed with it. <laughs> it kind of felt a little gay, not a little spicy to me or something. It, uh,
3: but then I, you know, I tasted it more and liked it. I didn't try it just because. Around the area, there was always rumors about um, what was in it. And even when I came on and did the ordering, I was still a little hesitant because that was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, But it's actually really, really good. I I feel bad that I didn't. I waited so long to
7: try it. There is a smell, and I wish I was um, more adept at identifying Spices, but there is a smell about burgoo that is not—it's not like chili, right? So chi- you can smell when there's a pot of chili on or if chili is cooking. It's not like that. There's something just a little tangy about it. Um, yeah, it—it it, it, it is a distinct smell, for sure. It makes me feel like um, springtime. I long for it.
2: It has that muddling of flavors that come about to create a unique flavor of what burgoo is. And so when you have it, it's not beef stew, it's not vegetable soup, it's not, you know, it's, it's something and it has a little bit of a bite from the pepper in it, but it's not hot. And so burgoo, when you reach that golden color, you you look at the consistency of it and you see the potatoes in it and you see the meat in it and you go, that's burgoo.
3: You really get the smoky taste From it being cooked on the fire um, for, you know, 12 hours or 13 hours or whatever it takes. So
7: I would say it must be cooked over a fire. I would say it must have vegetables. I almost said it must have meat, but there are a lot of vegetarian burgoos out there too. So it doesn't have to have meat and there must be spices. So those are your must haves. And I like to think of burgoo as Um, diverse as Kentucky itself. Sometimes it could be a tomato base uh, with chicken and pork. Uh, Other times it could just be vegetable based with uh, beans, lots of beans, lima beans, corn. Um, Some can have potatoes, but that's a little less popular potatoes, not a big one. Um, Spices, I mean, run the gamut. The meat really varies. Um, Popular, it's been called roadkill stew, but it could be fully intentional, right? So we're talking possum, squirrel, pigeon, um, any type of bird or game.
2: Back in the day, it definitely had wild game in it if you go back to the 1800s. You know, in the modern version, it's mutton, beef, and chicken.
10: My grand, you know, they use all different types of meat, you know rabbit, squirrel, groundhog, whatever, put in there. I guess over the years, you know, people got, I don't know what word you call it, but they rather have the modern meat, you know, like beef, pork, chicken, whatever.
8: Some people do uh, use wild game, such as deer or bear, we have had people that use rattlesnake in the stew. They have to have three kinds of meat in the stew.
12: In a lot of burgoo, you have that mixture of meats, mixture of flavors like beef, lamb, and chicken, which mixed together kind of, I think, is um, supposed to kind of emulate the taste of wild game, uh, in a way, by mixing meats together. And then it has potatoes, corn, onions, butter beans, carrots, and so on—all the the common things you'd find in In most Burgoo,
3: it's not really a secret ingredient because we let people know that we put it in there. But August Hill Winery is located in in Utica. Their storefront is in Utica, and we do use their red wine to um, marinate the meat and cook with.
12: Every local tradition is a little bit different. You know, we had we talked to some people who say, "Oh no, you can't put butter beans in that." It's only supposed to have bum dum dum whatever you know some it has to have cabbage oh no not cabbage no you can't put that in burger. It gets to be fun if you know, if you come down the moonlight sometime
2: and you come in the morning. There's some some old timers that drink coffee and 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 every now and then I poke the bear and and, and talk about you know what is that really burger if you put this in it you know especially if I know they put that in there you know like if I know somebody puts lima beans in their burger, I'm like is it really burger if you put lima beans on it. And then I walk away and get them all stirred up, and they get they get a big debate going on on who's his best or what do you put in it. And my sister,
11: uh, when she makes burgoo, good lord, she puts green beans and peas in hers. I don't put green beans and peas in mine uh, because my understanding is traditional burgoo didn't have green beans and peas, but she likes that, and that's how she makes it.
4: Hi, I'm Kendall Clinton from the Lawrenceburg Anderson County Tourism Commission, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of burgoo. Well, I am not from Lawrenceburg originally. I was born in southern Indiana, and burgoo is also a dish found there. I grew up until I was about five years old next to my grandfather's house, and he cooked burgoo before I was born. So I remember even at age four and five, each fall, seeing my grandfather drag out his cast iron uh, burgoo kettle, light a fire in the driveway, and he would cook burgu, um there in the driveway, and he did that for years, and he, when he finally passed away uh, in his mid-80s, the burgoo pot was inherited by his children and other family members, so my mom and her sisters and other relatives would still get together in the fall and they would all contribute one of the items that was used for their burgu recipe.
2: For this area in Kentucky, it's just a heritage soup and it's something that's been in so many families for so many generations that everyone knows what it is, even if they don't agree what goes in it. So you see a soup and you go, that's burgu. But the recipes will all be a little bit different, but everyone knows what it is.
11: When the mom and dad would pack us up and haul us off to the local uh, veterans' post for a big to-do or goings-on or whatever it happened to be, back in the back parking lot, there would be a burgoo going on. And when I say that, I refer to a big black cast-iron kettle. Um, filled with the the recipe, the recipe as it were, uh, James Conway, the burgoo king, doing the honors. um, And I recall being asked to help with the stirring, with the stirring of the big burgoo pot. It was done with a
7: large wooden paddle. And now think of a large black kettle over a very big fire with a person tending to it constantly. Some would use canoe paddles and they would say when the canoe paddle sticks straight up in the middle, you're done, that's when it's done, which takes a long time, right? So these are units of measurement we have here. So um, the tending of the stew and the stirring of it is another important aspect of how you create it. This is not a throw it together in a pot on the stove kind of thing.
3: Because you have to have something that's big enough to get down to the bottom. Like I said, if you let that sit and the the fire is cooking that, a lot of times that'll burn. So you need something long enough to um, get to the bottom of the kettle and be able to move the food around so it doesn't burn. So we do use boat oars. I mean, they're probably four feet long, three and a half, four feet long. Just enough to where you can, you know, get in there and really stir it really well.
4: My grandfather actually used a boat oar to stir his. I mean, the pots are so big. And when he got older, he got tired of stirring it. And he was kind of uh, an inventor of sorts. And he uh, hooked the boat oar up to a electric motor so it would manually stir the uh, burger. He didn't have to stand there and stir it the whole time.
2: You know, I, I remember even in, in maybe it was the eighties, some of the churches start start making some hybrid paddles because it's real hot to be over the soup. And then they get like an L-shaped paddle so you can stir it from farther away. So you'll see some pictures at, at, at a barbecue festival and you'll see them with like an L-shaped paddle that allows you to stir it without being in the middle of the heat. And and, and then maybe even later there's there's a, there's one church in, in, in the community that that created uh, automatic stirs for their kettles. And so, so technology plays a little bit on, on how much you stir it. It's, it's, it's what you're using. But originally it was a, it, something that had to be constantly stirred to keep it from burning. So, so you know, you know a, lot, a lot of times it was the younger people who, who did all the stirring. And the older, the older men were drinking the beer and watching the younger boys get hot stirring the burgers. So, um, you know, I definitely had my time of
11: stirring the pot. And Mr. Conway had been around long enough to know that he didn't want to spend the entire day. And it's a day-long cook. It's a day-long operation. He didn't want to stir the pie all day long. He was smarter than that. But uh, there were kids like me and my brothers and sisters and other kids uh, of the veterans organization who would line up for our opportunity to take a turn on the burgoo paddle. And I thought that was just wonderful. Uh, at the time, I didn't know what Bergu was. But I did realize that while that process was underway, man, there were people stacked up there in the back parking lot of the
2: Veterans Post. There was a party going on. Barbecue is a funny word. It's both a noun and a verb. You know, the noun is what you're eating, but the verb is what you're doing. The men were barbecuing at, at the church picnics and the women were cooking the vegetables, and everyone worked together, and that, that's what things I think makes barbecue so unique, is it's, it's, it's not just mom's job, it's not just dad's job, it's a family job, and I think that's the, the legacy of barbecue and burgu, is, is that it, it's a communal event, and so to me, it's always more about the verb than the noun, that it's always about doing it and making it as much as enjoying it.
6: I did a church once document, and I, I had a pretty big video camera on my shoulder kind of thing. And I got there at six o'clock in the morning and it was between here, Lawrenceburg and Harrisburg. But they invited me out there to do it to document it. And I, I got there at like, like I said 6 30 or something and basically had everything kind of figured out. They, they had like eight women in the basement of this church cutting onions. Just cutting onions like crazy. <laughs> I I was in there trying to videotape it and I was crying. I couldn't wait for that part to be done to go outside I got outside probably about eight and they had the pots going they had about eight big pots there and they were big ones and they were um they started bringing the tomato juice and the other stuff and the meats and just started cooking it and start stirring it and the neat thing about that was this is it's not just it's not just a cooking it's it's a place where you can tell stories so these men are and boys who are watching them who, who want to take a turn stern so they can feel like they're gonna be a man too. Uh they're all telling stories and and uh you have like a hierarchy there, uh kind of also of the guy who's allowed to sweep around the area and clean it up, and the guys who who got who got to be the stirrers and to be the chefs. Uh not the chef yet, but you can see. Who's in charge and who's not, and and uh, it was it was a great dynamic. So watch that. And I, I stayed with them all day. I did a lot of video with that. And about seven six to seven o'clock is when they were done. And cars from all over the county were driving up there, and you you couldn't even park next to the church. You had to park like a mile down, and people were walking with their little containers because you've brought your container, and they would fill it up for you, and you buy your buy it by the gallon or by the Court or whatever and people you could tell people really looked forward to it and it was it was not just going there to buy it it was there to see everybody uh, see all the people and it's a like a celebration
7: there's a uh, a historian here in frankfurt his name is russ kennedy and he says for is not a dish it's an event not only creating the food itself but it's generally reserved for large gatherings, so church suppers, family reunions, very popular, political rallies, any time when large groups of people gather, and it has to be over an open fire because a lot of people will say that the the smoke has to impart its flavor on on the on the dish as well. So it's really um, a social gathering meal. Burgoo is
11: associated with harvest. Uh, People would come on a weekend. They would come from their farms and their their little homes throughout the county. They would come to town, come to town for a harvest celebration, you see. And they would bring whatever it was they had to contribute to the Big Burgoo pot. Now, if you can imagine a ginormous cast iron pot tied off on trees so it wouldn't tip over, and if you could imagine people standing on step stools around the circumference of the pot with, <laughs> with giant stir paddles, and they would cook for days. They would cook for days, and they would serve the community to celebrate the harvest. And now, picture this: you've got all these people gathered for this harvest celebration. What better place? What better place in the universe for the politicians to show up for the opportunity to do a little stump speaking? That's where the association between Virgo and Fall political events came into being, and to this day, I mean, to this day, here in the the new millennium, we do a lot of burgoo events for politicians that are running for election.
10: At one time, we used to cook burgoo for different ones running for governor on the Democrat ticket, and I've met several governors, and especially I'm friends with one governor ex-governor
13: now my first experience with burgu happened not long after i moved up here i actually moved to lawrenceburg in around 2000 so being new to the area we just went with the insurance agency that my wife's father her family used and they they were tobacco farmers and so we went with farm bureau which a lot of folks do they're a great company i'm not plugging for them by any means the reason i'm telling you that is because every year farm bureau would have a appreciation like a customer appreciation for their customers and so so what they would do they at the alton ruritan club they would uh, the night before davy warford as steve had mentioned to you and a bunch of other folks who were in the ruritan club there at Alton would stay out all night with the big cast iron pots cooking burgoo so my first experience was one of these farm bureau customer appreciations and the craziest thing it was the craziest thing to me because my wife said, hey, we're going to go to the Farm Bur- farm Bureau Burgoo tonight. You need to grab a, grab a pot. So I would grab like a pot I'd make chicken noodle soup in, you know, I don't know, a quart pot or whatever. And she would grab a pan or pot, whatever. And we'd bring a fork or, or spoon, our own spoon, fork, and a pot. And we went up there and you would you get your burgoo. You'd go down and set in and they'd have like drawings and stuff. So the burgoo that I had was actually the Davy Warford, and Steve had mentioned Holly Warford, I think, and which is Davy's granddaddy, I think.
10: The fire bureau, there's usually about forty or fifty helping, because the fire bureau gets the FFA come in help stir, help pack the water, and then usually at, that there's a humongous crowd.
11: In my heart. Burgoo is an event. Uh, it's great food, but it's an event. It's more It's more than food. It's an event. People together. People slapping each other on the back. People telling stories and old tales. And you remember so-and-so? Yeah. You remember the time that this? Yeah. Just the time to, you know, let your hair down, have a good time, get you a cup of Burgoo, all is right in the world.
7: We can... Put- we could talk about it in a, in an ingredients way or in the purpose of the food's way. Is it, who's it going to serve? So a true burgoo, I don't feel like it would be true if it wasn't serving a large group of people. But you could, otherwise I'd just call it stew.
12: Hello, I'm Jay Williams, and you're listening to the local fairy tale of burgoo. Dan Woodward, the filmmaker who made the documentary film about burgoo, uh, and I consulted with a lot of different experts, and we found that burgoo, the word burgoo, uh, meant basically a thick porridge. And it was used even on English sailing ships going back to the 1600s, 1700s. Uh, they would say, cook up a burgoo, and that just meant cook up a thick porridge. Now, but as time went on, that name of using the term burgoo just to mean a thick thickly cooked porridge began to mean a hunter's stew
2: where did the word come from a lot of people think the word burgoo came from the word ragu like a stew of mutton
7: of, of course it's hard to pin down right because words come from generations and generations of how things are called or changed regional dialects you know there is um there is a word called burgal, which was a Turkish wheat pilaf bulger. We would call a bulger wheat. Um, and it was used for porridge by British sailors. And so they think that the word could have come from that. They also think it could have come from a, a mismatch between barbecue and ragu, which is a French stew. Um, So how the word came to be is unclear.
11: Burgoo is an old dish that comes from the days of settlement of these United States. Uh, Many stories say it it came over in the belly of the ships. Um, It was made from what they had uh, on board. Um, People think that burgoo Came from Bulger Wheat. That's where they got the name. Bulger Wheat wound up being Bergu. Uh And there are a million different fascinating stories about where the name comes from and who,
12: who are we to say which one is right. We also traveled to a little town called Burgoo, West Virginia. It turns out that going back to the early 19th century, there was a group of hunters camped on the Elk River in what is now west virginia would have been virginia at that time and they made up uh, a stew of various meats including venison and groundhog and whatever else they had killed on this hunting trip and they seasoned it with applejack and pronounced it uh, a delicious (laughs) burgoo and so burgoo west virginia and they named the nearby river Burgoo creek where this camp had taken had um, had happened and so these early cooks, whose names have been lost to history, at least left, by, left behind the name of burgoo uh, attached to the stew that they had cooked.
8: The theory that we have, or I don't know who established that, but it was uh, at the end of a day of hunting by people hunting various game whatever they had managed to uh, get that day they put it all in the pot for the evening meal and added their vegetables and any spices or whatever and they i don't know for whatever reason called it (laughs) burgoo
5: i I really think that that the town of burgoo is tied to the beast burgoo and if you go way back indians used to come to this area and hunt for their food and when they were hunting for their food they put a pot on the fire and you know and if you come in with a squirrel you throw it in the pot if you had a rabbit you throw it in the pot and, and that's really where burgoo uh, stew came from and i'm not sure but i really think burgoo probably was named from that
9: oh i've heard so many different variations it's one of those like it's like bigfoot you know We don't really know. I've heard that the Native Americans came up with it. I heard that uh, back in slavery days, that's where it came from. I heard, um, you know, just more of a pioneer type of thing. So we don't really don't know where it came from. All we do know is that around 1930, well, I think it was made in the 1800s, but it didn't really become popular in the racing circuit until about the 30s. And, uh, but I think it's been there for a long time. So I, I've looked. I, we have a, a historical library on property, and I've actually gone to research it, and I've gone as far as the as the early 30s, and that's as far as I've gotten on it, and everything else is speculation.
4: I guess invented, uh, they think back in the 1800s, and they're not sure who invented it. One, one theory is it was a Frenchman who was looking for something to feed Civil War troops, and they were just taking whatever they had on hand, um, and then there was another theory that it was a group of freed slaves that were basically doing the same thing, trying to cook with what was available. So,
12: of course, the origins going way back are cloaked in in mystery, but people do know a lot about figures like J.T. Looney, Jim Looney, who was known as the Burgu king, and Gust Gilbert, who was his mentor, the one he who was reputed to have served thousands of gallons of burgoo back in the late 19th century, and so and that was certainly wasn't a new tradition. If, if they were serving thousands of gallons of burgoo in the 1880s and 1890s, well, certainly wasn't a new thing. They, it, it has to have gone back much, much farther.
11: And uh, the Courier-Journal, uh, based in Louisville, uh, once reported on Gilbert cooking burgoo for 6,000 Civil War veterans down in Louisville he cooked burgoo for 6000 people and the courier journal asked him they said you know uh, what do you have lim- how many can you cook for what's your limitation he said my limitation is only how much supply you can provide
12: john edgerton was the one in his in his book southern food had repeated a recipe that i think originally had been published in probably the Louisville Courier Journal by Tandy Ellis, which was a kind of taking Gus Jobert's recipe as it had been handed on to uh, Jim Looney, the Burgoo King, uh, and he had found that recipe or gotten that recipe either word of mouth or found out about it somehow, and then republished the recipe in quantities that would be. Right for a, an individual household, and if you look at, at John's book, that recipe appears in his book. So you can really say if you go cook John Edgerton's recipe for burgoo, you're really cooking probably as close to what we know of Gus Jobert's nineteenth century burgoo recipe as you can get.
7: Jobert really kicks off the culture of burgoo in the mid to. Um, mid 19th century to late 19th century. And then by the turn of the 20th century, it's everywhere, you know, people everywhere in Kentucky, people are making it constantly. He also passed down his legacy, including his kettle pot that he used to another man, JT Looney. And JT Looney is known as the Burgoo King. He continued the legacy of Joubert's work with the Burgoo. Now, as the Burgoo King, he was so popular, they named a horse after him. And in 1932, that horse, Bergu King, uh, not only ran, but won the Kentucky Derby and then won the Preakness Stakes um, and did not win, it won two of the three of the Triple Crown. Burgoo King
11: actually won two legs of the Triple Crown. He did not run in the third leg, and that is a subject for um, a podcast in and of itself, the history of Burgoo King, why he did not run, what happened to the jockey, da-da-da-da-da-da. da -da
7: -da i am Jessica Stavros from the Kentucky Historical Society, and you are listening to the local fairy tale of Burgoo. In Kentucky, we have a group of people called the Kentucky Colonels. Colonel Sanders is a famous one. Um, lots of people who uh, are in Kentucky have this have this honor bestowed upon them, and you can only be made a Kentucky Colonel by the governor. Um, people can nominate you to be a Colonel or bestow a Colonelship upon you, but it's a um, originally it was an advisory group to the governor of Kentucky. So I was honored with the distinction of being a Kentucky Colonel. And when I first um, joined the group, I was really excited to be involved in all of their social events. And the Kentucky Colonels have a well-known Derby breakfast on the weekend of the Kentucky Derby. Now the Kentucky Derby is always the first Saturday in May. And so the the Kentucky Colonel's Derby breakfast is the first Sunday in May. And when you arrive at the Colonel's Breakfast, you are first given, and this is an order, there's an order to it. The first thing you are to have is a mint julep. And of course, in a beautiful sterling um, silver julep cup, icy crushed ice with fresh mint and bourbon on top. And your second course is a cup of burgoo. So I see this enormous Large black kettle over an enormous fire that has clearly been going for more than a day, um, and that is where everyone gets their cup is out of um, out of that large block black kettle. So I was given a cup of BURGU at this breakfast. Staff with my, and it's a, a great accompaniment to a mint julep. I might add, puts a little as we say here tar on the roof, and uh, uh, it was delicious.
11: Uh, one of the great events that we we do each year, we partner on some events with um, uh, Buffalo Trace Distillery down here, and every year they have a they have a celebration surrounding Derby Day. Oh my God, people come from all across the United States to visit Buffalo Trace on on Derby weekend, and we cook burgoo. Um, our big, our big day is Oaks day, Oaks day, Kentucky Oaks day is the Derby for Phillies. It's the day before the Derby day. And that's the big day at Buffalo trace. Okay. So they allow us to come in and we set up our equipment and all this sort of stuff. And, um, they have several local vendors and, and, uh, tour buses. I didn't know that there were that many tour buses in the world but these black tour buses roll in by the dozens, people from all over the country, and they come and, they, and a large part of them wanna have a little bowl of Kentucky Burger. We have more fun at that event. We've met people from 22 states, I think it is, and seven countries. Um, we, we met some folks one year from France, um and they kept coming back and they kept bringing people with them come back come here come here you gotta have some of this
14: kingland uh racetrack is famous for their burgoo over there
9: turf catering was the company that had had the concession here for since 1930s um i believe they're they're the ones that came up with the original recipe um as tradition is tradition you know it stayed it stayed and that's what people really uh connected to so the recipes have been around for a long time through turf catering, and I have not t- changed the recipe since
0: then. The first time I had it was actually that I remember was Keeneland. Uh, I think probably about six or seven years ago, my wife and I went to Keeneland one day, and uh, I knew it was on the on the menu there, so we had it. We sell we have forty two uh, uh, concession stands. I've
9: got twelve dining rooms, and we sell burgoo in every location because you know we use it in my. Dining rooms is a starter course. So you can have a salad, a, a soup of the day, a chili, I mean not a chili, or their burgoo. And burgoo sells quite well. That's what people are looking for. It brings back memories and, and traditions that when they came back to Keenland, when they came to Keeneland as a child, having burgoo on a on a chilly day in November with their father, that's what they're looking for. They're looking and a lot of good foods like this are our memories. And so, you know, that, that's that, that's sacred to me. That's what a good dish should be. It should hark back to your childhood.
0: I, I will go to Keeneland and I will, use, if it's, when I when I go to the races at Keeneland in either the spring or the fall meet, I will usually make sure if I'm going to be eating lunch there, that's what I'll order is, is some burgoo. When Keeneland first started, there weren't 12 kitchens and 12 dining rooms all of this
9: place. There was one kitchen and there was one dining room. So I think they kept it simple just to be able to pull it off. So they serve hot dogs and that was the first thing they started off. They called them red hots. And that's, that's, that's how they started. It was just Red Hots and beer. Um, and I think burgoo f- was one of those easy dishes to make in bulk and be able to serve in a very expeditious fashion. And I think that's where it really started I, because, you know, it's, it's not that expensive to put out, you know, it's, it's, it's forgiving on the recipe. And I'm sure they had some tweaks in the beginning. I'm sure they evolved into this recipe that is today, but yeah. So I think they evolved, they expanded the menu as they went, but I think Stew is easy to hold and easy to serve. And, 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 and so I think that's why. But I don't know. I could be wrong.
3: Hi, I'm Amanda Carter with the LaSalle County Historical Society, and you are listening to Local Fairy Tale of Burgoo. This idea had been brought up by one of the first secretaries of our um, organization her name was Connie Fetzer and she had been to Aaronsville, Illinois and they have a festival called burgoo as well and they're about 50 years more than us I think it's their 103rd or 104th burgoo and it's always in September they had it so she had went down there and thought it was such a cool idea brought it back here to LaSalle County and we started the festival in 1969.
8: The first cook-off we had here in Webster Springs was in uh, 1996. The, the lady who established uh, the Burgoo cook-off, her uh, thoughts behind it were we have a small community in our county named Burgoo, so let's have a Burgoo cook-off. And of course, the two names are spelled differently.
4: Well, Kentucky has just tons of festivals, especially in the fall, and Lawrenceburg did not have a festival back in the mid-90s, so a lady named Mava Gill, she called a group of people together and said, we would like to start a festival. Anybody interested, we'll we'll have a meeting, so they had a meeting, and they didn't, I don't think they had the idea of what the theme was going to be, but after they met, they decided that Lawrenceburg and Anderson County's long history with Burgu would be a good, um, good theme for the festival.
8: Well, it was just to have a fall festival, uh, something that would be good for the community. And of course we hoped to make a little bit of money from it. But um, the main reason was just to have a fall uh, activity for the community.
3: My father was president of the LaSalle County Historical Society in 2012 and 2013. And um, being as though most of it's it's a nonprofit organization, a lot of it's dependent on volunteers. So when he stepped in, um, a lot of my family kind of got roped in with it. But we've done it since 2013, 2014. And it is actually a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. Um, So I came in with him. Unfortunately, he did pass away in 2000, the end of 2013. So we kind of felt like we needed to keep up and keep the festival alive. Because at that point in time, there was only a select few that were making arrangements for it. So I've kind of been here ever since. And Um, have tried to make it a bigger and better event each and every year.
8: Well, we of course, we put out uh, an advertisement um, for the date and so forth. And we put out rules and regulations for preparation of the stew. And um, there's three kinds of meat. And we say like bacon and salt pork cannot be counted as a meat. That's just for flavoring. Then uh, fresh or canned vegetables or spices of their choice. And the entries just come the day of the festival and bring their stew. There's a $10 entry fee. And uh, they bring it to the site already prepared. But, and we provide electricity to uh, reheat it or they have their own uh, method of reheating. So that it can be uh, you know, hot and ready for the for the judging.
3: So usually um we will start the Friday before. So the stew is actually served on Sunday. And this is always Columbus Day weekend. So Friday we have volunteers that come in, they set up our burgoo stand, which is basically the tables that we need to work on. Um, and they get we have to get like a um uh, bobcat and carry out the kettles which the kettles probably weigh 100 150 pound piece um they are set into they're all almost like cylinders that the it goes in um so the kettle sets in the cylinder and then there's like a wood fire underneath so that's how we do our cooking so all of that stuff is set up the friday before the actual festival saturday morning we have probably about 15 or 20 volunteers that come in and they chop up all the vegetables for our burgoo stew. So that's the carrots, the onions, the cabbage, anything that the burgoo miser would use. Um, volunteers come in and they they cut it all up and they get it all ready. And usually once we do that, we we have like a refrigerated truck over by um the kettles we set we actually set the kettles up along the Illinois and Michigan Canal. Um we have two museums on either side, so we'll we'll set those up. And then Saturday night about six PM, they start and they light the fires for um the cooking. By seven or seven thirty, we got the onions and the garlic roasting in there and then they gradually add the the meat and the vegetables and the um you know, the tomato base, that all gets added in throughout the night. I would say by 3 or 3.30 in the morning, everything that's going into that stew is actually in the stew. And then by 7.30 or 8 the next morning, it's ready to serve. And we have, I believe we have six kettles. Um, they hold a range of 80 to 120 gallons of stew in each of them.
4: The burghu uh, competition usually is teams. Um, some of them are are families who have been cooking burghu, you know, for years. Some of, some of them are um, businesses that get together and they'll cook, but yeah, it requires several people, uh, especially if you're making a large amount, because there's a lot of uh, cutting up of ingredients and, uh, you know, the big thing is the stirring, if you're doing it uh, the traditional way in a um, cast iron kettle. Uh, over over an open fire
3: it's usually once it's ready to go we announce it and we start serving it and usually takes about three or four hours for us to serve what we have people
4: pay a little bit of money and then they get to sample all the different burgu entries and select the winners for that year and all the money they raise goes to the shop with a cop program for christmas i think last time they had about seven different entries and the styles of burgu vary greatly Um, like I so said, there's no one recipe for making it, and it could have any number of different ingredients.
5: But when you have the burgoo cook-off, you, you buy a ticket and you get a sample of all the burgoo, different variety. Uh, and they always have a winner from the judges, and then they have a crowd favorite.
8: We use professional chefs um, to judge each time. Uh, we've been lucky in uh, being able to, uh, you know, find enough within close proximity. First place is $500. Uh, Second place is $200. Third place is $100. And we also have a People's Choice Award, which is $50. And that People's Choice uh, all the people in attendance who would like to taste the various stews pay one dollar and uh, get the taste and vote for their favorite. Most everybody who attends is really anxious to get to that people's choice. I mean, they like it, like to taste it.
4: Well, it's hard to get a count since there's no, I mean, people can come in from all different directions, but, you know, several thousand people over the weekend. Um, will come through and a lot of people come back every day uh, if there's different events going on or
3: the weekend we get between 65 and 75,000 people in Utica which the the town is about 850 people
8: there's been as high as five or six hundred and sometimes it's you know less than that
4: it's your typical small town festival you'll have um contests um they've silly little contests like uh Ugly lamp contests and pumpkin decorating, uh, quilt block making. Uh, they'll have those kind of contests. They've got vendors downtown who sell, you know, arts and crafts, all kinds of different things along those lines. And then they have food vendors who are selling, some of them sell a but um, our Cattlemen's association sells a ribeye sandwich. They're there every year. Uh, and then a whole different variety of, of different food vendors
3: it's not really a fair atmosphere. Um, it's it's like a street festival is what I would call it. So we have a lot of food vendors that are scattered throughout town. We have a lot of people that do arts and crafts. I always say you can find pretty much whatever you're looking for when you're walking around because it's just uh, of different types of vendors that are all set up.
8: We have uh, some activities for kids. Uh, We have pumpkin painting contests because it's fall. We have a scarecrow contest, which after the event, the scarecrows are used to decorate our downtown area. And we have live bluegrass music.
4: We also have um... A permanent stage downtown on our green and they'll have sometimes they'll have live music drag out
14: the kettle and sharpen the knives something good coming there ain't no jive get the fire burning gonna cook it slow slurred all night man don't you know I've been hot Virgo. it's the spot Virgo. A little or a lot throw it all together that's, that's what you got collectively we just kind of thought that um, you know that might be cool to have a song about Bergood. and um, to be honest I don't remember exactly how that all transpired but I remember when the the fellow that did the documentary uh, came to town he I think he asked if there was a song uh, maybe, that we could do and just by fate the song was already in the works and and pretty much done um so that was great that we had that in the can and ready to go um for when the uh the festival came about and the documentary was shot and that that's that's the way i remember it it was a long time ago
0: and birdie and punching Creek. Punchin Creek is a, um, well, it's a creek in Western Anderson County. It's also a road by that name in Western Anderson County and more like a community in that part of the county. So um, I know when I was in high school, I I did some farm work in that part of the county, you know, tobacco and hay, and I always thought it was an interesting name. I like the sound of it. It's, it's spelled a little differently. You kind of have to spell it out for people if you're going to tell them what the name of your band is. But um, for whatever reason, we we threw out ideas and decided on Punching Creek. Tyrone's turn six days a week. It seems it's like the, the burgoo history days in Anderson County, they don't know exactly
4: when he'll start cooking it here. But somebody found and has a photo from the early 1900s showing a group cooking Burghue down in a small town by the Kentucky River called Tyrone which is a couple miles outside of Lawrenceburg. Um, and the photo caption says, Bergu supper on the river, Tyrone, early 1900. Um, so we know it's been around for over a hundred years.
0: Just past Ballard on Baxter Ridge, Bumble and smidge, out in alternate Ruritan.
14: So it's it's pronounced, like Brandon said, it's pronounced Ruritan, but we had to make it Ruritan in order to rhyme with hot dog stand've been hot it's the spot a little lot that's what you
3: I always think that the best part of that whole weekend is actually at night when you see them actually making it because it's so much different than you know, you or I going to our stove and making a stew on the stove. I mean, you actually see what they have to go through to get that much soup made. And it is, I mean, it's a kettle, it's a metal kettle, you know, where it's cooking with wood. So it's, I mean, the smells and the atmosphere is just, it's like magical.
0: Virgo, hot Virgo.
14: It's a spot for a little or lot, throw it all
13: together, that's what you've got.
8: You know, it's just, it's turned into a nice little festival, and it's really appreciated by the community and really supported by the community, and uh, it's a fun fall activity.
3: <laughs> throw it all together, that's what you've got. But really, at the end of the day, it is so rewarding because it is, I mean, not only is the Burgu, it's it's interesting it's you know unique um with the festival comes like a fellowship i believe you know it's it's harvest season you know everybody comes together it's it's about community and you can really feel that with the whole festival itself Throw
14: it all together, that's what you got stir that pot
11: Hey, my name is Russ Kennedy, and you are listening to the local fairy tale of Burghue. You know, Burghue Meister, I always thought Burghue is somebody that's good at making burgoo. You know, you don't go to school and earn a certificate for it, but if you make a concoction called burgoo and it's good, that makes you a Burghue I call myself a burgoo meister because I make a burgoo product that people think is good. So I gave myself the title, oh, you must be a burgoo meister. Uh, burgoo king, that's what people want to call you. you. know, Somebody puts their arm around me and says, hey, there's the burgoo king. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All
8: right, well, I'll be that.
11: I'll be that. That'd be Okay. Over next door to Franklin County, Kentucky, is Anderson County, Kentucky. Uh, there's a family over there, the Warford family. And the Warford family has been making burgoo in Anderson County for decades and probably centuries. You know, they're the burgoo kings of Anderson County.
10: It was always there. I helped off and on for years with my dad, and my grandfather. I was probably 10, 12, getting the vegetables, packing the vegetables, you know, in the pot and, you know, getting the firewood, you know, and, you know, running here and there doing stuff, you know, because I was young. My grandfather, Holly Willerspoon Walford Senior, back, I guess, around World War I era. 1917 along that era I used to be in an old distillery the, uh, Givers Creek Road called Old Joe and my grandfather lived not too far from it and he would help get the water and get the vegetables get the wood You know, help put the stuff in and then over the years he kind of done it for uh, Clay Lake Methodist Church cooking, help cooking with that, and, and Democrat rallies, and 4 clubs, and Farm Bureau insurance, you know, it kind of lost now.
2: My grandfather bought a little diner in February of 1963, and it seated about 20 people counting the bar stools, and he, he was, he already had two jobs at the time. He, he was a taxi, mostly he was a taxi cab driver, and this was the American dream, was to own your own business, and he'd been working two jobs, and the opportunity to buy this, this little diner to come up for sale. And it was just the American dream to own your own business. And, and so him and his wife, they had five kids, you know, sold the house, come up with a down payment, moved in with their mother-in-law and, you know, went into the restaurant business with very little experience and and uh, very little education. And it was just hard work. And I think the same people skills he had from driving a taxi cab and the same life lessons he, he'd learned you know, cooking. It was family recipes. It was it was grandma making pies at home and bringing them to the restaurant. You know, it was it was you know, granddad cooking on the pits. From grade school on, I've worked here at the restaurant. I started out. I pick up my my days in grade school, like little, was I pick up trash in the parking lot, and then I come in and I sweep the floors. And then I'd fill up cups of potato salad to weigh one pound each. I'd pre-fill these potato salads so after I picked up trash and swept the floor. Then, I, then I'd prep, do prep work, or fill in containers up to sell. And then, you know, I'd be two, three hours every day after school when I got a little bit of money. I never got an allowance, but I always got paid for my work. So, you know, a lot of people, even when my family didn't have any money, saw me as being, having money or being rich because I always had some money in my pocket. But I was working at this time. and. I've always grown up working, and it's just been part of our our culture that that you have to work together to obtain something. And you know, you're you're talking about of the five siblings, four of them ran the restaurant, one went on to do something else.
12: There's always somebody who's kind of in charge, you know, who's the the Gus Jobert, who kind of is the the keeper of the tradition, who who knows what the standard is supposed to taste like, and. You know he does the taste and if it passes muster you know or he'll say mm, no you need a little more of this or a little more of that and that's you know that is there's always a tradition keeper there's somebody who's the the one who got who knows that taste because they were there a lot understudying somebody some other mentor way back whether it was a grandfather or a, an, an older person in the community man or woman uh, and that person then makes sure that, that there's a person to pass that tradition on to. Uh, and when you when you're around those kinds of people, and you're, you they make you understand like this is why ours is different and special. And you taste it and you say, mm, no, yeah, I know that really is different and special. That's very different from what I tasted in the town 20 miles away. And they say, oh yeah, and you and you know, for them, it's better. For me, it's just, hey, it's a great privilege to be able to be part of their tradition.
11: James Conway was a regular guy. James Conway was a John Doe here in Frankfort, Kentucky. He was employed by the Commonwealth. He was Commonwealth, a state worker, just a, a local guy, he served in the war, uh, was a great friend of, of my mom and dad. And that's where I know him from. He's just a member of the local Veterans Post. But whenever there was a burgoo, whenever there was a veteran's event, whenever there, he was there. He was the guy. If there was a burgoo, James Conway was on site, large and in charge. That's where he got the name Burgoo King because, you know, thinking back, how could you have a burgoo without James Conway? I mean, James Conway was was burgoo. Around here, that's kind of what he did. I don't even know what his job was with state government. I don't know what he did. I do know he made burgers. <laughs> and he made, made the best, and I spent a lifetime trying to make mine as good as his.
10: I used my grandfather's kettles, and uh, he's got an old paddle that I use. And they used to rainer's lard with it. And I use it, and he's got some. He made some homemade paddles. One was out of a copper pipe, you know, and
11: stuff. So people ask me all the time about the recipe. I don't. I don't remember Conway ever having a recipe. I never saw a recipe. My job was stirring the pot. He supervised, and we stirred, and he tasted. And he put a little more of this and a little more of that and I,
2: I don't know that he ever really honest to goodness had a recipe. The time in the kitchen to me was invaluable. You know, I cook with my mother, I cook with my father, I've cooked with my aunts and uncles and great aunts, and that's some of the most valuable experiences of my life was was cooking. And it it wasn't about the science of the food or it wasn't about the, even the art of the food, it, it was, it was about the heritage of the food and the time and the kitchen. And, and sometimes you don't, don't know, you, you're going to lose something and you can't get it back. If you don't spend that time with your grandparents cooking, you can't get it back later. If you don't, you know, if you don't figure out how your mother makes your favorite dish, it's really hard for you to make that favorite, favorite dish later. Uh, you know, and, and you can't just get a recipe card. We have recipes and then there's the art. I've got I've gotten recipes from my grandmother that I can't match from just the recipe card because there's there's subtle things that go into how you cook that are hard to write down. So if you want to make a great recipe with a mother, father, grandmother, is you need to make notes while you're cooking that that, that go into to what and why they're doing doing things.
6: Russ has an Excel spreadsheet. Uh with all these formulas in it. So when somebody calls him up and says, I got 50, 30, 40 people are going to come to this burgoo function you're going to do, he just puts in the numbers and it tells him exactly how much of everything he needs to buy and what pot, which one of his pots he needs to use to make it in. Isn't that cool? <laughs> and could you imagine Jim Conway coming back and the guy that taught him who didn't have a recipe and just grabbed everything from their freezer
11: coming back and
6: seeing this spreadsheet. So I guess he'd be proud.
11: (laughs) I'm a mathematics nerd and I have my recipe on spreadsheet with mathematic functions so that when we uh, become aware of how many gallons we need to cook, you know, say we're doing 60 gallons, uh, then I just put 60 in up there as my variable and then it calculates how many teaspoons of this, how many tablespoons of that, how many pints of this, how many quarts of that, how many pounds of uh, pork, how many pounds of chicken, how many pounds of beef. And it just it's just a math, math it's a real, real simple Excel spreadsheet. But it gets us to that consistency in that, you know, it's going to have the same amount of cayenne pepper per gallon whether we're making 10 gallons or 110.
9: Yeah, you know, they'll, they'll tell you. They'll call you on it if it's not consistent. So it's got to be consistent. It has
2: to be. Our recipes really haven't changed. And, you know, burger has been, an, been as a part of the restaurant even before it was a restaurant. And so was barbecue. So it's not like our menus evolved. It, it's actually we have to innovate, stay the same. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting concept where you don't want to evolve and you don't want to change. and You got to be who you are. So there's this constant struggle with with sourcing materials and ingredients to innovate to stay the same, and it's it's a it's a funny concept because most people are wanting to change their menus all the time. You go to this restaurant, and they're always wanting to put new items on the menu, where we struggle to have the same items on the menu, and it, it's it's a it's a very it's a big challenge right now. So even if there's no mutton left, there's not really no mutton raised around. We now semi truck the mutton in. It comes out of the Midwest United States where lamb is raised. So I get. I get two shipments of mutton in a week to keep because we use it fresh and you can't really buy it locally anymore. So even if you even if you can't find the local ingredient, the recipes were based on what was locally available. So now you have to source those ingredients in. But luckily,
11: I've got David and Jack and they're young and full of energy. (laughs) And they're just as good at it or better than I ever was. And they share the passion for it. They share, the, they share the passion for wanting to get it right. They share the, the passion for the history uh, of the product. And they share that desire uh, to make people happy when they're standing there with a bowl of our product on a frosty fall afternoon and, and they're having fun with their, their family and friends and all, you know. And these, these young fellows that helped me get that. And, and as we've said before, it ain't about the recipe. They understand that the end product is way more important than the recipe. You know, what you, what you get in that spoon when you're sampling, what, what's in that spoon is way more important than what's on that paper.
6: What made, it, made me think we should study it is because there are so many people talking about it and in Lawrenceburg and here and they all had stories about it and recipes and things. So when you see a food that's regional to a group or a family, that's when I think we ought to study that because it means something to that group. It's, it's important to them. It's uh, If you took it away, I always think about folklore is if somebody took it away from you, would you feel bad about it? Would it hurt, you know?
10: Well, hopefully my daughter and son-in-law and my nephew will take over when when I'm history.
2: I'm worried when I see our local churches that stewardship is down. And I see less young men and women learning how to cook the chickens and the burgers and the things that go on these church picnics. And you wonder who's the next generation of cooks going to be. It's just like my family, you know, there used to be about a dozen of us family members working at the restaurant. Now there's like, you know, there's there's only four or five. So each generation you, you loot, you peel off some of them. But there are some of the fourth generation here. You know, there, there's there's about five of the fourth generation currently working down here right now and four of the third generation. But I see every year there's less family in, in the business. So you wonder, you know, who's going to be the last family member standing and how you're going to carry on the heritage is always concerned for something like burgoo and mutton is who's gonna carry on the legacy at the churches, who's gonna cook it next year? You know, what happens when the old timer who's cooking the burgoo can't cook it anymore? Did someone learn from him how to make it? So it's gonna be a real challenge to take a recipe card and cook burgoo. You know, we're cooking 70 gallons a day and the, and the churches are doing the same thing. And so when you start cooking in these, these large volumes, it, it, it gets to be more challenging to, to produce food and, and do it consistently. So I worry about who's going to carry on the legacy. All that equipment that we have, that's, that's theirs. What am I going to do with it when I'm dead? And I figure for the next
11: 20, 30 years, that park will be in good hands. And uh, then they'll pass it along to, to their kids and stuff. But, you know, maybe now I'm the guy that drinks beer while the young guys are stirring. Um, and that's okay. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Maybe that's the tradition that hands down, you know, like oral history, that hands down one generation to the next. You know, maybe that's the plan. Maybe that's the intent. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. I feel like I've I've done my part.
2: Oh! As you're talking about the fairy tale of burgoo, it's more than the ingredients in the pot. You know, there, there's, there's a lot that goes into a pot of burgoo that's not on the recipe card. And that's the emotions and memories and, and heritage that goes into barbecue and burgoo.
1: And that is the local fairy tale of burgoo. More information about the Burgoo Tale Tellers can be found at localfairy, F-A-R-E-Y, tales, T-A-L-E-S, And be sure to follow Local Fairy Tales podcast on Facebook and Instagram to share your own tales about Burgoo or other local fair. And if you don't know much about your local fair, ask. There are tale tellers everywhere. Heaping spoonfuls of gratitude to Patrick Bosley, Amanda Carter, Kendall Clinton, Pastor Benny Kalger, Tim Frederick, Bob Gates, Russ Kennedy, Greg Marcy, Steve Ross, Jessica Stavros, Chef Mark Therrien, Davey Warford, Brandon Warren, and Jay Williams for providing me with a kettle full of Burgoo knowledge. And additional resource thanks to Dave Kirk, Chris Graham, Pat Henderson, Mary Perkins, Sarah Schmidt, Sadler Taylor, and Stan Woodward. A lot of work went into launching this podcast, and I'm extremely grateful for everyone that has supported me along the way. With a special shout out to my parents, who listened to multiple edits and learned a lot about Burgoo in the process. concept, production, and editing by me, Nora Vetter. That's What You Got Song by Punch and Creek, music by Anisha Thomas, and artwork by Jonathan Reich. More local fairy tales are coming soon, so be sure to subscribe on your favorite place to listen to podcasts.